Chapter thirty seven, part one of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Kirsten Ferreri. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. Volume three, chapter thirty seven. Conversion of the Barbarians to Christianity. Part One, Origin, Progress, and Effects of the Monastic Life, Conversion of the Barbarians to Christianity and Arianism, Persecution of the Vandals in Africa, Extinction of Arianism among the Barbarians. The indissoluble connection of civil and ecclesiastical affairs has compelled and encouraged me to relate the progress, the persecutions, the establishment, the divisions, the final triumph, and the gradual corruption of Christianity. I have purposely delayed the consideration of two religious events, interesting in the study of human nature, and important in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. First, the institution of the monastic life, and second, the conversion of the northern barbarians. Prosperity and peace introduced the distinction of the vulgar and the ascetic Christians. The loose and imperfect practice of religion satisfied the conscience of the multitude. The prince or magistrate, the soldier or merchant, reconciled their fervent zeal and implicit faith with the exercise of their profession, the pursuit of their interest, and the indulgence of their passion. But the ascetics, who obeyed and abused the rigid precepts of the gospel, were inspired by the savage enthusiasm which represents man as a criminal and God as a tyrant. They seriously renounced the business and the pleasures of the age, abjured the use of wine, flesh, and marriage, chastised their body, mortified their affections, and embraced a life of misery as the price of eternal happiness. In the reign of Constantine, the ascetics fled from a profane and degenerate world to perpetual solitude, or religious society. Like the first Christians of Jerusalem, they resigned the use or property of their temporal possessions, established regular communities of the same sex and a similar disposition, and assumed the name of hermits, monks, and anchorites, expressive of their lonely retreat in a natural or artificial desert. They soon acquired the respect of the world which they despised, and the loudest applause was bestowed on this divine philosophy which surpassed, without the aid of science or reason, the laborious virtues of the Grecian schools. The monks might indeed contend with the Stoics in contempt of fortune, pain, and death. The Pythagorean silence and submission were revived in their servile discipline, and they disdained, as firmly as the cynics themselves, all the forms and decencies of civil society. But the votaries of this divine philosophy aspired to imitate a purer and more perfect model. They trod in the footsteps of the prophets, who had retired to the desert, and they restored the devout and contemplative life, which had been instituted by the Essenians in Palestine and Egypt. The philosophic eye of Pliny had surveyed with astonishment a solitary people, who dwelt among the palm-trees near the Dead Sea, who subsisted without money, who were propagated without women, and who derived from the disgust and repentance of mankind a perpetual supply of voluntary associates. Egypt the fruitful parent of superstition, afforded the first example of monastic life. Antony, an illiterate youth of the lower parts of Thebes, distributed his patrimony, deserted his family and native home, and executed his monastic penance with original and intrepid fanaticism. 
after a long and painful novitiate among the tombs and in a ruined tower, he boldly advanced into the desert three days' journey to the eastward of the Nile, discovered a lonely spot which possessed the advantages of shade and water, and fixed his last residence on Mount Colzim, near the Red Sea, where an ancient monastery still preserves the name and memory of the saint. The curious devotion of the Christians pursued him to the desert, and when he was obliged to appear at Alexandria, in the face of mankind he supported his fame with discretion and dignity. He enjoyed the friendship of Athanasius, whose doctrine he approved, and the Egyptian peasant respectfully declined a respectful invitation from the Emperor Constantine. The venerable patriarch, for Antony attained the age of one hundred and five years, beheld the numerous progeny which had been formed by his example and his lessons. The prolific colonies of monks multiplied with rapid increase on the sands of Libya, upon the rocks of Thebes, and in the cities of the Nile. To the south of Alexandria, the mountain and adjacent desert of Nitria were peopled by five thousand anchorets, and the, and the traveller may still investigate the ruins of fifty monasteries, which were planted in that barren soil by the disciples of Antony. In the upper Thebes, the vacant island of Taben was occupied by Pacomius and fourteen hundred of his brethren. That holy abbot successively founded nine monasteries of men and one of women, and the festival of Easter sometimes collected fifty thousand religious persons who followed his angelic rule of discipline. The stately and populous city of Oxyrhynchus, the seat of Christian orthodoxy, had devoted the temples, the public edifices, and even the ramparts to pious and charitable uses— and the bishop, who might preach in twelve churches, computed ten thousand females and twenty thousand males of the monastic profession. The Egyptians, who gloried in this marvellous revolution, were disposed to hope and to believe that the number of monks was equal to the remainder of the people, and posterity might repeat the saying, which had been formerly applied to the sacred animals of the same country, that in Egypt it was less difficult to find a god than a man. Athanasius introduced into Rome the knowledge and practice of the monastic life, and a school of this new philosophy was opened by the disciples of Antony, who accompanied their primate to the holy threshold of the Vatican. The strange and savage appearance of these Egyptians excited at first horror and contempt, and at length applause and zealous imitation. The senators, and more especially the matrons, transformed their palaces and villas into religious houses, and the narrow institution of six vestals was eclipsed by the frequent monasteries, which were seated on the ruins of ancient temples, and in the midst of the Roman Forum. Inflamed by the example of Antony, a Syrian youth, whose name was Hilarion, fixed his dreary abode on a sandy beach, between the sea and Amoris, about seven miles from Gaza. The austere penance in which he persisted forty-eight years diffused a similar enthusiasm, and the holy man was followed by a train of two or three thousand anchorites, whenever he visited the innumerable monasteries of Palestine. The fame of Basil is immortal in the monastic history of the East. With a mind that had tasted the learning and eloquence of Athens, with an ambition scarcely to be satisfied with the archbishopric of Caesarea, Basil retired to a savage solitude in Pontus, and deigned for a while to give laws to the spiritual colonies which he profusely scattered along the coast of the Black Sea. In the west, Martin of Tours, a soldier, a hermit, a bishop, and a saint, established the monasteries of Gaul. Two thousand of his disciples followed him to the grave, and his eloquent historian challenges the deserts of Thebes to produce, in a more favourable climate, a champion of equal virtue. 
The progress of the monks was not less rapid or universal than that of Christianity itself. Every province, and at last every city of the empire, was filled with their increasing multitudes, and the bleak and barren isles from Lorenz to Lepari, that rose out of the Tuscan sea, were chosen by the anchorites for the place of their voluntary exile. An easy and perpetual intercourse by sea and land connected the provinces of the Roman world, and the life of Hilarion displays the facility with which an indigent hermit of Palestine might traverse Egypt, embark for Sicily, escape to Epirus, and finally settle in the island of Cyprus. The Latin Christians embraced the religious institutions of Rome. The pilgrims who visited Jerusalem eagerly copied in the most distant climates of the earth the faithful model of the monastic life. The disciples of Antony spread themselves beyond the tropic, over the Christian empire of Ethiopia. The monastery of Bancor in Flintshire, which contained above two thousand brethren, dispersed a numerous colony among the barbarians of Ireland, and Iona, one of the Hebrides, which was planted by the Irish monks, diffused over the northern regions a doubtful ray of science and superstition. These unhappy exiles from social life were impelled by the dark and implacable genius of superstition. Their mutual resolution was supported by the example of millions of either sex, of every age, and of every rank, and each proselyte who entered the gates of a monastery was persuaded that he trod the steep and thorny path of eternal happiness. But the operation of these religious motives was variously determined by the temper and situation of mankind. Reason might subdue or passion suspend their influence, but they acted most forcibly on the infirm minds of children and females. They were strengthened by secret remorse or accidental misfortune, and they might derive some aid from the temporal considerations of vanity or interest. It was naturally supposed that the pious and humble monks, who had renounced the world to accomplish the work of their salvation, were the best qualified for the spiritual government of the Christians. The reluctant hermit was torn from his cell, and seated amidst the acclamations of the people, on the episcopal throne, the monasteries of Egypt, Gaul, and the East, supplied a regular succession of saints and bishops, and ambition soon discovered the secret road which led to the possession of wealth and honor. The popular monks, whose reputation was connected with the fame and success of the order, assiduously labored to multiply the number of their fellow-captives. They insinuated themselves into noble and opulent families, and the specious arts of flattery and seduction were employed to secure those proselytes who might bestow wealth or dignity on the monastic profession. The indignant father bewailed the loss, perhaps, of an only son. The credulous maid was betrayed by vanity to violate the laws of nature, and the matron aspired to imaginary perfection by renouncing the virtues of domestic life. Paula yielded to the persuasive eloquence of Jerome, and the profane title of mother-in-law of God tempted that illustrious widow to consecrate the virginity of her daughter Eustochium. By the advice and in the company of her spiritual guide, Paula abandoned Rome and her infant son, retired to the holy village of Bethlehem, founded a hospital in four monasteries, and acquired, by her alms and penance, an eminent and conspicuous station in the Catholic Church. Such rare and illustrious penitents were celebrated as the glory and example of their age, but the monasteries were filled by a crowd of obscure and abject plebeians, who gained in the cloister much more than they had sacrificed in the world. 
peasant slaves and mechanics might escape from poverty and contempt to a safe and honorable profession, whose apparent hardships are mitigated by custom, by popular applause, and by the secret relaxation of discipline. The subjects of Rome, whose persons and fortunes were made responsible for unequal and exorbitant tributes, retired from the oppression of the imperial government, and the pusillanimous youth preferred the penance of a monastic to the dangers of a military life. The affrighted provincials of every rank who fled before barbarians found shelter and subsistence. Whole legions were buried in these religious sanctuaries, and the same cause which relieved the distress of individuals impaired the strength and fortitude of the empire. The monastic profession of the ancients was an act of voluntary devotion. The inconstant fanatic was threatened with the eternal vengeance of the god whom he deserted, but the doors of the monastery were still open for repentance. Those monks whose conscience was fortified by reason or passion were at liberty to resume the character of men and citizens, and even the spouses of Christ might accept the legal embraces of an earthly lover. The examples of scandal and the progress of superstition suggested the propriety of more forcible restraints. After a sufficient trial, the fidelity of the novice was secured by a solemn and perpetual vow, and his irrevocable engagement was ratified by the laws of church and state. A guilty fugitive was pursued, arrested, and restored to his perpetual prison, and the interposition of the magistrate oppressed the freedom and the merit which had alleviated in some degree the abject slavery of the monastic discipline. The actions of a monk, his words and even his thoughts, were determined by an inflexible rule, or a capricious superior. The slightest offences were corrected by disgrace or confinement, extraordinary fasts or bloody flagellation, and disobedience, murmur or delay were ranked in the catalogue of the most heinous sins. Blind submission to the commands of the abbot, however absurd or criminal they might seem, was the ruling principle, the first virtue of the Egyptian monks, and their patience was frequently exercised by the most extravagant trials. They were directed to remove an enormous walk assiduously to water a barren staff that was planted in the ground till at the end of three years it should vegetate and blossom like a tree to walk into a fiery furnace or to cast their infant into a deep pond and several saints or madmen have been immortalized in monastic story by their thoughtless and fearless obedience the freedom of the mind the source of every generous and rational sentiment was destroyed by the habits of credulity and submission and the monk contracting the vices of a slave, devoutly followed the faith and passion of his ecclesiastical tyrant. The peace of the Eastern Church was invaded by a swarm of fanatics, incapable of fear or reason or humanity, and the imperial troops acknowledged without shame that they were much less apprehensive of an encounter with the fiercest barbarians. Superstition has often framed and consecrated the fantastic garments of the monks, but their apparent singularity sometimes proceeds from their uniform attachment to a simple primitive model, which the revolutions of fashion have made ridiculous in the eyes of mankind. The father of the Benedictines expressly disclaims all idea of choice and merit, and soberly exhorts his disciples to adopt the coarse and convenient dress of the countries which they may inhabit. The monastic habits of the ancients varied with the climate, and their mode of life, and they assumed with the same indifference the sheepskin of the Egyptian peasants or the cloak of Grecian philosophers. They allowed themselves the use of linen in Egypt, where it was a cheap and domestic manufacture, but in the West they rejected such as an expensive article of foreign luxury. It was the practice of the monks either to cut or shave their hair. They wrapped their heads in a cowl to escape the sight of profane objects. 
Their legs and feet were naked, except in extreme cold of winter, and their slow and feeble steps were supported by a long staff. The aspect of a genuine anchoret was horrid and disgusting. Every sensation that is offensive to man was thought acceptable to God. And the angelic rule of Tibet condemned the salutary custom of bathing the limbs in water, and of anointing them with oil. The austere monks slept on the ground, on a hard mat, or a rough blanket, and the same bundle of palm leaves served them, as a seat in the day and a pillow in the night. Their original cells were low, narrow huts, built of the slightest materials which formed, by the regular distribution of the streets, a large and populous village, enclosing within the common wall a church, a hospital, perhaps a library, some necessary offices, a garden, and a fountain or reservoir of fresh water. Thirty or forty brethren composed a family of separate discipline and diet, and the great monasteries of Egypt consisted of thirty or forty families. End of chapter 37 Part 1